My name is Guy Felicella, and my definition of relentless is never give up on yourself. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Relentless Podcast. I am Kyle Dubay, your host. And on today's episode, we are going to dig really deep into a life that is is pretty remarkable to me. Our guest today um, has gone through a lot, to say the least, and we're going to dig deep into addiction. We're going to dig deep into homelessness. We're then going to dig deep into recovery and what does that look like and harm reduction and, and, and many other things. Uh, I found this guy on Twitter is where I found him. Uh, saw a really interesting post that just was on my feed and I started following him and I, I just was really intrigued by the man and, and luckily reached out and, and asked if he'd come on because I really do think that he's a relentless individual who's had to be relentless in many, many ways in his life. And I'm going to do my very best uh, not to butches, butcher his last name like I've butchered many last names on here. But coming in from Vancouver, we've got Mr. Guy Felicella. Thanks, Cal. Guy, it's good to have you here. Did I, did I do your last name right? Perfect. Oh, man. I get nervous sometimes. I get nervous. <laughs> Felicello, what 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 uh, what is that? Is that I want to say is that Italian? Yeah, it's Italian. Yeah. Well, it's good to have you here, guy. We had a good little conversation before we were recording. Talked a little hockey, which is always appreciated. And um, you're out in the Vancouver area, guy. We're we're gonna let you tell a bit of your story in regards to uh, your life and 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 whatnot. But uh, you're you've been out in the Vancouver area your whole life, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, born and raised. Guy, let's let's get right into this. Before before we go hard, um, my hope is that the 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 people that are listening to this are going to be really open minded because I do think that we're going to talk about some topics that, for the most part, some of society thinks are it's an easy fix when it comes to addictions when it comes to homelessness when it comes to that type of stuff but you have lived quite a life and i think you're going to be able to give me and and the people who are listening a a pretty good perspective as far as what that life looks like and and also why that life ended up happening for you and, and how difficult it was to get out so if you don't mind let's start Let's start. Where where did it all start happening for you, guy? Um, well, yeah, I grew up in the a small community outside of Vancouver, uh, Richmond, BC, and um, you know, uh, I have one brother, one sister, mom, dad. You know, nice house, money. Um, you know, I describe my you know childhood as you know cloudy with you know a chance of thunder and lightning you know, very, can be unpredictable. Um, you know, as a, as a young kid, you know, my mom had her struggles, my dad had her str- his struggles and, you know, it, it, it uh, you know, the combat combative, uh, nature in the household, you know, developed into, you know, my anxiety, depression, um, you know, and eventually led to, you know, self-hatred, you know, I was lack coping mechanisms. Um, you know, I describe my parents physically there, but emotionally, you know, void and 
um, you know, as a young kid growing up looking for, you know, some nurturing and, you know, love and what you do see is something completely the opposite. Uh, you know, I, I, I was dealing with that also undiagnosed learning disabilities, very much struggled in school called hyper difficult, hard to manage, um, had a hard time sleeping because of my anxiety. I was very, uh, an edgy kid, you know, um, and, uh, you know, struggled all because of it. And, you know, in, uh, you know, the dysfunctionalism in the household, you know, led me to try to look for ways to distract myself from that. You know, I was good at sports as a kid and I got a lot of validation from coaches, you know, saying that, you know, this guy plays with so much heart and I wasn't the best player, but I was one that would never give up. But I always felt free there. It was distracting me from my from my life at home. But unfortunately, you know, you go back home and there was good moments at home, but when it got bad, it just, those memories seem to be the ones that haunt you the most. And, you know, by the time I was, you know, 12 years old, the stuff that I'd seen, you know, the verbal abuse, the, you know, witnessing physical abuse, alcoholism, and, you know, uh, going into, you know, being, put into a battered women's shelter and you just see these things. You see other people struggling in these shelters as well. And, you know, those are the memories that really kind of haunted me. And, you know, eventually, you know, it would get better and then it would get worse. And my mom would leave, we'd leave and I'd have some hope and then she'd go back. And, and I just started to really get angry at everybody. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, you know, I was doubting my myself in life so much um, that, you know, you start thinking of like, you know, what's really the point of doing this? And, um, you know, I looked for an avenue and at 12 years old, I started running away from home because it was safer to be out than it was to be in an unpredictable environment now i didn't know much about what homelessness looks like at 12 years old but i had a lot of kids in in the areas like they would pitch a tent in their backyard i would sleep there they wouldn't tell their parents and that kind of stuff but you know it was pretty much every friend of mine knew what i was struggling with and then you know the police would bring you back home and i'd get beat up for running away and, you know, I'd leave again and, you know, but it just got to the point where I, I was thinking of ending my life. And then, you know, I, I really found something that was the greatest thing that I ever found in my life. And it was street drugs. And mm. when I found those substances, it just really took everything away. Right. Now, what you won't understand at 12 years old is that, you know, eventually it wants to eliminate, you know, absolutely everything in your life, depending on who you are as a user. Now, there's different reasons of why somebody uses drugs. Somebody can, you know, use for fun and, you know, go on with their lives. But I wasn't a, a, a social drug user. I was a get wasted drug user. I was that that type of person. Well, and Guy, it sounds to me there's I mean, there's so much to unpack here. Um, you were you were already looking for an escape. You were, you were, I mean, sports was giving you a, a temporary escape, right? Whenever you were playing, you weren't at home. Like you said, the coaches. And really at that age, I mean, your brain is just 
so underdeveloped and you're really trying to figure so many things out and and you've already been through all this trauma and then you go to sports and this coach is going way to go guy this guy's got so much heart he's amazing look at his hustle he works so hard i mean that feels good your teammates are probably loving you and then you end up going back to and i like the way that you put that um cloudy with the chance of of uh some lightning and some thunder because it was unpredictable where the sports or maybe some other activities in your life they were more predictable you know that they 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 were they were almost they were conditional right you act this way you do this you know that you're going to get this type of praise where at home you didn't by the time you're 12 years old from what i'm hearing you just you needed to escape and Uh, yeah and I, I needed relief. Relief and escape and, and some sort of repri- reprise from this life you were living. So, you know, I, I've heard some people say, well, when I, I made the choice to start doing drugs, I just don't believe at 12 years old, people make that choice. I, I believe that what you were going through and, and, and even when we talk about the mental health of the anxiety and the depression, it you know, that that wanting to have the relief and then you experiencing the drug that whatever it was, the first one that maybe gave you the, of course you're going to keep doing that. Is that fair to say? In, in my world, yeah. I mean, it just made me, it made me smile, you know, something that uh, it's, it's, it's interesting as a, as a young kid where you're not, you know, it's like you're either happy or you're trying to distract yourself from the sadness. And I was, I wasn't happy. Yeah, I was looking for distraction from sadness, and um, and the drugs distracted me enough where I, it was almost like a modified version of happiness. Right? I felt good when I had the drugs. That it didn't really matter. <laughs> I knew how to survive my household. This is the one thing about being a youngster or whoever you are, whatever you get caught in, is that you understand what you need to do to get through the day. Uh, and that becomes familiar. And you, you break, you, it's very hard to even, people will even look back and say, guy, why, what if you were to reach out? Why didn't want MCFD to come and grab me and pull me away from that? Because you're going to put me in an environment that I'm also going to have to try to figure out. Right, then you got to start all over again. And this one, even though it's not a good environment, I know how to handle the environment. Sure. So you become familiar, even though it's in a sickness, with being comforted in that. Yeah. I can get through that. And then, you know, after that, you know, getting involved with with gangs at a very early age. It's so interesting that you're talking about the, the, you, you know, you figure it out. As you, you know what I do, work for You Can Use Services here in Amazon, Alberta. We deal with a lot of uh, high-risk, at-risk, and vulnerable young people. And I've often thought to myself in meeting some of these young people and then reading their files and knowing what they've been through, they're, 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 they're honestly, they're just so impressive to me because of the fact that they've become so resilient and because they've had to exactly what you're saying, you learn how to navigate those really dysfunctional, hard places that you're at in life and that resiliency that gets built up within them. And I always call it, and then you become, you learn how to hustle, right? You learn how to stick handle and move around and shimmy shake here and there to get out of this, get out of that. And you actually become really good at it. And to me, it's an incredible skill set that a lot of people don't have 
because they didn't experience some of those really hard things. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I mean, uh, I'll tell you the one thing that I was good at is that I was a good hustler. I was even later on in my life, I called it, you know, the Olympics of drug using, like I was the, the gold medal winner. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in navigating on, on how to get substances. Yeah. You know, but you, as a youth being, you know, I remember being, you know, at 14 and being incarcerated uh, for a year. And when you get into a juvenile detention, you know, and it's a it's a facility where you can't leave. I, I mean, here became the and being I was also made a ward of the court at that time, which really kind of, you know, um, put a lot of uh, shame because I heard that what my mom said in court that I wasn't controllable and that, you know, all the issues that were happening were, um, you know, because I was just acting out. And so you were being, blamed, you got blamed. Yeah. And you carry that. I did carry that. And uh, I didn't know what word of the court meant, but when they explained to me that I wouldn't go back home after incarceration, I had this sense of sadness again that I was just, you know, um, abandoned or disregarded. And and then you go into custody and it's a whole new environment. And I was 14. I was a small kid. I wasn't I mean, I was small compared to the people that were in there. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was um, I just remember getting into the counselor's office. They actually the, the inmates actually thought I was her child. Huh. And uh, she said, no, he's 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 going to be with you guys. And they were like, wow, he looks like a baby. Huh. And I remember getting into her office and I never forget her name. Her name was Sandy Gooby. But I've always had the, an instrumental person come through my life, even if it was just for a year or six months or one day. Right. This lady, I got into her office. I just started to cry. And I told her I wanted to go home. And she said, but you can't go home. And I said, I know I can, but I still want to. And she said, you know, I said, I don't know how to do this. This is what I was saying to her is I don't know how to get through this. Right. He said to me, guy, we're going to get through this together. And and yeah, and it just kind of I cried the whole night. And, you know, as time went on, you know, I I developed a, a relationship with people in the institution and I became comfortable and knew how to navigate now the institutional life right so at 14 years old you're put into your first uh your first juvie you're 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 saying to sandy i i don't want to be here and i and and i i really love the way that you were describing that earlier i know we've already talked about it but like you really learned how to live in that whatever that battlefield prior to that and now you're going into a new one and you're going i don't want to learn this i don't want to but I know that I've heard you talk before. You stayed there for, I think, a year, wasn't it, Guy? And then by the time that year came up, you didn't want to leave. Explain yeah. that a little bit, if you don't mind. I, I mean, you. I, I honestly, because it was so, you know, something I, I honestly, I, I felt I felt love from the, the people in there. Mm. Um, you know, I was uh, respected as well, and you know, uh, I had a good job working in the kitchen, learning how to cook. Um, you know, so I developed those kinds of skills and, sure. 
um you know it had a swimming pool a gym you know the stuff you start getting into new things positive activities yeah and you know um you become i became comfortable you know maybe somewhat institutionalized and also to the feeling of being accepted um was was a big gift in my life and then you know, they were starting to talk about my release and, you know, I was going to a group home out in UBC and I just, um, I developed a real good relationship with Sandy and she took me, and I remember it, we went to the keg mm-hmm. and we went to see the movie Firestarter. With Drew Barrymore. With Drew Barrymore and that was the big hit back then and this was her way of, of you know, um, showing that affection and love in my life and i um i even remember ordering the steak the same way she ordered it and they said no she looked at she goes no you'll have a medium rare she's not having it blue um and uh because i didn't know what blue meant but oh, she oh so she was going real raw and you and you were just trying because again you're excited you're feeling loved you want to have you are you is do you still in contact with Sandy? Have you ever talked to Sandy again? Sandy was um, about uh, sixty-four years old back then. In the early eighties, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. I heard she's she's passed, but yeah. uh, I did try to um, connect with her in my early twenties. But um, apparently, she'd moved to Toronto. But uh, yeah. and I never forgot the woman. And even when I I told her that I didn't want to leave and. Um, she told me I had no choice and that I'd have to leave. And I actually remember telling her, well, I'll break the law and come back. And she said, no, you can't guy, because you can only come through this program once you'll go to YDC. And I went to this group home and I started to cry. And it was the same feeling that I had when I got to jail and I called her and she told me, remember when you came to jail, you had, you were crying in the office and I told you we were going to get through this together. And, and she said, guy, you're going to meet some new friends. You're going to, you know, you're going to have to go to school out there. You're going to, you know, you'll, you'll figure it out. I'm always a phone call away. And I called her for a few weeks and then she, as always, she was right. And, uh, you know, I'd gotten into a groove in there and made you some new, fi- yeah, I'd figure out the new battlefield, new battlefield and. Sorry to interrupt the Relentless Podcast, everybody, although this is a very good message. We want you to go and check out our Relentless Merchandise Store. That's right. We have launched a merchandise store for all of our Relentless garb. We've got t-shirts. We've got hoodies. We've got crew necks. We've got hats. We've got toques. And we're going to be coming out with some more merchandise in the very near future. So please www.ucan.ca that's y-o-u-c-a-n.ca when you get to the website you look up to the top right corner i think it says buy our merch hit that button boom it'll take you there we really want you to wear our stuff one because every dollar raised goes directly into our programming for the young people we work with and two because it's a conversation starter for you when you wear it, people are going to go, what's relentless? You can then brag about how you support an incredibly good organization helping young people. And then you can talk about how you are relentless in your life. That's what we want. We don't want us to just be relentless. We want you to be relentless too. Thanks for your support. And we appreciate you helping us out. 
Now, back to the show. You know what I'd like to do right now? I'd like, I'd like us to, to take a pause. And I would like us to, anyone who's listening to this right now, because, and I hope that this will contribute to later on what we're going to talk about. I want you to stop wherever you're listening and think about yourself at 14 years old. That's what I want you to do. Because I think quite often when we think of, of uh, at-risk youth, vulnerable youth, we think of maybe 16, 17, 18. We work with up to 25 years old at UCANU services. And I think sometimes they, they almost look at them like they're old enough to know better. They're adults. They're this, they're that. But I want you to think about yourself at 14 years old because I'm thinking about myself at 14 years old right now. I'm thinking about the fact that I didn't come from the greatest household, but it was a, it was a good household. It was a mom and dad that were pretty supportive. They cared about me. They loved me. I mean, there was our dysfunction of, like most homes. But when we're listening to what Guy is saying here and what he's going through as a 14-year-old with the, with the level of brain development of a 14, a 14-year-old that hasn't been through what Guy's been through, and now you're going through all this, I think it's good to stop, pause, reflect, and really... If you can, be empathetic towards Guy, but just know that there are thousands of guys out there, young guys, girls, that are, that are dealing with this. So I hope you don't mind that I paused to have people think about that because, I, Guy, I don't think that – I think when people hear a story like yours, they're like, oh, man, that was rough, but we don't think hard enough about what this does long-term in one's life, Right? Oh, agreed. Yeah. Yeah. We have a lot of people struggling. I think, you know, you, you struggle with confidence and self-worth and, you know, I get to this group home and I do well there for a year and then it became bounced around from group home to group home. You know, you could be in one school district one week and then, you know, they move you a few weeks later. So I just started running away from, you know, everything and anyone and the drugs got harder and faster and hooked up with the old, you know, gang associates again. And, you know, that was after that, that uh, my, my life really started to spiral out of control. And, um, you know, you go through your youth as in and out of juvenile detention, like all of it, you know, you're either in or you're out like you're, but you're, you're back and forth constantly. I've developed these patterns. Yeah. Um, and I probably, you know, like I said, jail seemed to be a safer place for me than being out on the street because, you know, I just had a hard time trying to function. But I was always trying to numb a lot of stuff out of my life because I wasn't prepared to deal with it. And not that I really at that point in my life um, understood how to deal with it. I didn't. I mean, having learning disabilities and not being able to, you know, um, process the issues or have any understanding on how to process anything and i've been through the psychiatrist run you know sure. seeing them being put on medications this that you know and these guys aren't diagnosing me with anything they're just giving me these drugs that make me feel gross and you know i i, I just couldn't take them and street drugs were the ones that took the stuff away absolutely absolutely yeah i know so the here's a band-aid right just you know, hopefully this helps. We got other people to deal with. 
Did you um, – so then you're about what now? We're, now we're hitting that 16, 17-year-old. You're, you're running with some gangs. You're, you're – I, I think early on you were like – well, I heard you I heard you on another thing say that, yeah, when I was 12, I you know, I did weed and LSD, and I'm like, LSD? Like, oh, let's, let's start with the light shit here, guy. Like, what the hell? You were doing some hard stuff. But then when you hit 16, 17, that's when you got onto the injections and the heroin and the coke and all that, right? Yeah, yeah, cocaine, just uh, smoking cocaine and, and heroin uh, – and then shortly after, yeah, the IVU started to um, to happen. And even as a kid, too, when I'm 16, I'll tell you, 200 bucks a gram for cocaine. Oh. Like, I mean, that drug was everywhere in British Columbia. I, I mean, absolutely. Like, I mean, where people people have always said, like, oh, you know, there's more drugs on the street. Today. I was like, man, I can get cocaine anywhere in the 80s. Yeah, it was in the Everybody 80s. Cocaine had. was huge. huge. Massive. Yeah. And it was somewhat, listen, even though it was the illegal, the crews that I ran with, and then the people I started discovering who was using it and buying it, because I was I was also a seller at that age for these gangs. Yeah. And the people who were buying off me, these people had like career jobs. And I was kind of like, man. Right. You know, I, I, I saw a whole demographic of people using drugs. This is, wasn't somebody that was homeless. This is somebody right. that had a lot of money. And they'd call and call and call and call. And so, you know, uh, my thing, though, uh, unfortunately, is that I, I wasn't good at selling drugs. I was good at using them. Right, right. You, uh, you lived on the east side of Vancouver for how many years being homeless? Over 20. Wow. Yeah. You know... What in Edmonton, like most cities, and I would say now it's it's getting worse and worse in all of our cities, and this is a very well known thing. Uh, there's a lot of homeless people, um, and I and I know that there's a lot of people that look at them and and say, "Come on, get your shit together, man! Like, get a job. Let's go here. Like, go to back to school. Like, why is this person homeless? Why is it you know like and and they don't want them anywhere near them." You know they don't want them near their their homes, and they don't want them near their businesses. And and to be honest with you, guy, a lot of that makes sense to me. A lot of that makes sense to me because it is a it is a scary thing. It is a scary thing. How does one survive for almost twenty years being homeless? And and maybe maybe try to explain to us a little bit what that looks like. So that our listeners can can maybe get a, just a bit of a grasp of that. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's a physically and mentally punishing condition. You know, it it's a it's a it's a hard life, man. Sleeping rough, like you know, um, as a kid, I used to sleep in the the Dunbar area in a paper bin, and then when I started venturing into the downtown east side you know i'd started sleeping um in doorways parkades you know places where you know people weren't around me because it's a very hard um it's very challenging to actually get any sleep because if there's people around you're very vulnerable when you're sleeping absolutely 
So you have to really, not only that, it's kind of like you sleep with one eye open because you're obviously trying to protect yourself at the same time, right? Uh, and or protect your belongings and or the elements of rain, uh, heat, and uh, winters were just bone chilling in, in, in Vancouver. And so you find spots to sleep, um, you know, and um, it, it, it physically the toll of sleeping on concrete, like my body is still punished today from it you know i I can't Um, even imagine yeah it's not like i mean people yeah i mean i didn't i I walked away doing all right but still i have some obvious consequences from you know my uh addiction and and the homelessness but i i call homelessness just one of those things where it was like you know like even the Woodward squat where we all the Woodward's building in the downtown east side when we squatted there for nine months because they were going to build you know uh, private housing there and i mean we were sleeping on the sidewalks there um and and obviously you know um they had a team of social workers there i didn't get housing some people got housing i i got a, i got put on welfare which i which was i was grateful that i just got that because I mean, but for that nine months, I remember there was mattresses there. So I was sleeping on a mattress on the sidewalk, which to me was a little bit more uh, comfortable. But man, just the inability to access housing. And then because I had other complications, you know, people didn't want to rent to me or, um, you know, I couldn't I couldn't just walk into, you know, pay rent in a facility because they didn't care and welfare at that time too there was a housing crisis it just seems to be in my life going through it that there's always been a housing crisis and and i mean no matter where you are i just find that um you know i had i had housing for about two years um and then i'd call my other house which was in being incarcerated was you know, but I did have a hotel that I stayed in, the Washington Hotel, and I was in there for about two years. But it was a small, um, it was almost like a jail cell. You know, I had a sink. It was a room probably with a bed and a sink. That's it. Yeah. And and one, two in the summertime, very hot inside, no air conditioning. Oh. So you'd be, you'd be like, man, like, you know, and there's, yeah, it. it so being on the, even though being on the street, where my place of refuge started to really happen, where I started to sleep was I slept on the injection site floor in the chill room for years. Like, and they allowed, they, they, they allowed us that it was, they knew that, listen, like he's going to be, we're not going to let him sleep on the sidewalk. So he picked my little, I had my little corner and I'd go in there and sometimes I'd sleep for when it would open at 9 a.m. and I wake up at 3 a.m. when it was closing, they would wake me up at about two o'clock telling me they're closing in an hour, give me some coffee and out I go back into the, into the life. But you know, the jungle, you, um, part of your story. And again, I, I've told, I told you before we got into this, like, I don't ever want to like trauma slime anybody. Right. I don't want to go into things that are so deep and personal. And I'm so thankful for you sharing what you've shared. You, you overdosed and essentially were dead six times in your life, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's correct. I, I mean, listen, I survived the first dueling public health crisis in British Columbia, which was the HIV AIDS crisis 
in the downtown east side where one in four people had contracted hiv aids i'd survived that i'd survived you know the overdose crisis in the 90s as well um i'd survived five osteomyelitis bone infections four in my left leg one in my back where i had to learn how to walk again i survived decades of being homeless i survived decades of being in and out of prison and then i survived um, you, you know, the six overdoses that happened in a nine month time frame in 2012 and 2013. And I, I mean, the, uh, the unfathomable toll that that takes on an individual, you know, uh, was just gripping. I mean, it is such a, it is such a fearful, scary thing to have happen and to have it happen that many times when people would say, well, why didn't you stop after the first time, you know, you overdosed. And I, I said, you know what, because what I was battling inside was just too hard to deal with. So l- l- that- let me ask you that then, because I know that some people can go six times in nine, 10 months. Like what the hell? How does that even happen, guy? Like, you know, maybe, and, and, and sorry, I told you, I'm going to ask some questions. Like I, you know, I know a little bit, but like, I don't know what I'm talking about because I really want people to be educated. How, how does, how, how does one overdose? And then how does that happen six times in a very short amount of time? I never overdosed once in my life. Never. I mean, I had my issues with drugs, never overdosed in, in the, pretty much the 30 years that I was using drugs. It was that last year and what, I remember as the drug supply started to change. This is when fentanyl started to creep into the market. And at that time in 2012, 5% of the overdose deaths were from concentrated fentanyl. So me being used to using the same substance for constantly for, you know, decades had now, even though it looked the same, changed, tastes the same, and the amount that I did, I couldn't gauge anymore. And when I overdosed the first time, I remember waking up in the hospital. And I was so shocked when they told me that I overdosed. And I was just like, how is that? What do you mean? Like, it was almost like a disbelief. Like, I, what are you talking about? And they said, yeah, you were, you were brought here by EHS. You overdosed. They brought you back to life. And. I was like, wow. Honestly, the first one, I didn't even really compute it because I was like, maybe I was sleeping or it was almost so, it was so confusing. Because what Uh, drug was this? This was heroin? Well, this is the thing. I, I thought it was heroin, but I remember at that time as well, the drugs that were on the street were called pebbles. And this was similar to what's available now. It was just colored dark brown. Um, and that was the drug that uh, it, it was a powerful, it was powerful. It was powerful, more powerful than some of the other substances that I was using. And so, sure. I mean, I can't say for sure uh, that it was fentanyl and I'm but, glad. To- but you were injecting, right? I was, yes. And then this happened five more times in the next nine months. Yeah. Yeah. And I- two times, two times were actually outside of, uh, a supervised consumption site. So I'm actually really lucky to be alive. Hmm. Like luckily, uh, just, yeah, very lucky. Let's talk about what your, I mean, guy, when, when, you know, that saying like, and, and a lot of people have heard it like, Oh, someone's got to hit rock bottom. 
what the hell was your rock bottom, man? I mean, when I'm listening to this life, most people would go, oh, well, that would have been rock bottom. No, that's rock. Oh, no, that's rock bottom. What, when you hear people say, oh, homeless guy, like, just get a job. Or like, come on, addiction people. Like, get off this. What do you think of that? Like, what is your response to that? Like, when people make it seem, well, it's got to be, it's easier than, than this. Like, these people are making choices to be here. What's your response to that? Yeah, I make a choice to go through what I went through, you know, as as a young kid, right? And a lot of kids don't make that choice either. They just have to survive those circumstances. And it's lack of understanding, lack of understanding the person or knowing the story. So we become judgmental by what we see or what we've learned and or what we've been taught. And you know what? Like, hey. There ain't nobody in this world that beats guy up better than guy. I don't need to hear it from anybody else. I was already dealing with a tremendous amount of shame and pain and frustration and, you know, sadness in my own life. And the last overdose that occurred in my life was February 18th, 2013. And when I woke up on the floor, the nurse was visibly emotional. And she, I just remember her words saying, guy I, I care about you and i just burst into tears man like that moment of humanity in a time where i was so vulnerable and i remember saying to her i don't want to do this anymore and i don't know how i'm going to stop i don't know what to do anymore but I know that I'm either going to die doing this or I'm going to die trying to get the hell out of here. And that's where I, I made a commitment. I don't know. The next day was like I was up in a detox facility right on top of the supervised consumption site. And I just made a commitment that let's just go all in. And if, if we don't make it, at least we'll die trying. And I walked away from the downtown east side of Vancouver with one set of clothes on my back and a welfare check with nothing. Absolutely nothing except a life decimated by pain, trauma, shame. I was diagnosed with um, ADHD, which really opened my mind because I'd often felt so stupid inside as a human being because I could walk into a room with people and I would think I was the dumbest guy in there. And I remember crying when I got the diagnosis because it was also, uh, I thought I was stupid my whole life. And I remember sharing that for the first time. And I remember uh, her saying, uh, you are not stupid. You are actually very smart of how you've had to navigate oh. the challenges throughout your life without knowing this. So it was kind of then after that also, my doctor at the time was Gabor Maté in the downtown east side, a well-known trauma specialist who actually, you know, said to me one time, he said, Guy, I don't think your problem is the drugs. I, I think there's a reason why you use them the way that you do. And he said, you know, tell me about your childhood. And I just remember I started to cry again. I couldn't even open my mouth. And so what started to happen is um, the interesting thing with trauma is that your body can only take so much of it, whether it's emotionally or physically or whatever until it has to either deal with it or you'll distract yourself from it. Sure. 
And so I'd gotten to a point in my life where I was going to try to deal with it. And slowly but surely, once I'd had understanding of who Guy was um, and what Guy's gone through, I was able to start chipping away at the healing process. And it became relatively easy for me to stop using the substances. That's interesting to me. That's interesting to me. Like, what was that like for you in the, you know, even in the first few days with all that, not few days, probably a few months, all that shit getting out of your system, like physically, emotionally, like there's a lot that happens there. Is there not? Oh, I was in with, I swear I was in withdrawal for probably six months. Yeah. Like I, I couldn't even have a sleep pattern. Like, you know what I mean? It was sporadic yeah. hour here, a couple hours here. I mean, you know, You're if, just if, so if, triggered if for no so one, long. If no one has ever experienced somebody going through withdrawal, I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest here. I, I won't drop names. I have ex- I helped somebody through withdrawal once, and um, the intensity of that, especially for those, it was probably about a week. That first week in particular, maybe two. The intensity of it was like something I had never seen. It it. I feel like I was with the sickest person that I've ever met in my life with what they were going through, like physically sick, mentally as well. It was like they didn't know what was happening. They were confused. It was just such a a turbulent situation that um, I would never wish upon anybody, anybody. So yeah. again, that's you. you must have gone through that you know, which many times I'd been in and out of treatment too many times too. The one thing that people really, you know, I just did a podcast, actually, it's a video, it's going to be on YouTube one day, but with Gabor. And I asked him about that moment where he, I, he said those words to me. And he said, it's not shocking what I said. He says, what's shocking is that not any psychiatrist or addiction specialist that had dealt with you before actually put the notion together that there wasn't just the drugs. Because I think when you would people, I was going to treatment and recovery. People were saying, go to treatment, go to recovery. I was like, I was. My life wasn't getting better. I was getting off the drugs, but I was still not dealing with the stuff from the past. And that's the part that made it really easy for me to keep going back to the well to keep buying more dope or doing more dope. Well, it's that it's that childhood trauma. And again, this is this is why, you know, I really wanted you to talk about that. One, because of what I do for a living and I I, I want people to hear this. Because, you know, you can use services. We we're the ones that put this podcast together, but to me, it is this understanding. And I, and I would say in 2023, I think you would agree, so much more knowledge and education out there now about this because in the 80s, nobody was going, well, what happened to him as a kid? Or in the 90s, what happened <laughs> to him as a kid? You yeah. know, if anything, it was like, we're not going to talk about that because we don't talk about that. But I, I do find it interesting that that at this uh, TSN turning point in your life of that that nurse saying that she cares about you and you making this commitment somebody finally said what happened to you as a kid and that's yeah. when you started dealing with it guy what what happened after that you essentially and i don't want to fast forward everything but i know that your time is limited and and i honestly think you and i could talk for nine hours about this yeah. um fast forward a little bit you're you're now clean you decide to do what with the rest of your life yeah, I mean, uh, went to uh, just a recovery house out in Surrey and, you know, uh, met my uh, my wife, and 
you know, the rest was history. And, you know, my purpose in life is to really um, give back, you know, uh, repairing the, I always call it, you know, I'm repairing my past by doing good deeds in the future and, 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 and the present. And, um, you know, one of the things is that I've never forgotten all the people who were kind to me. And for those people, I think, and I've also never forgotten the ones that weren't kind to me, but I forgive them. And I think a big part of my story was that I was able to move past and find forgiveness, not only for myself, um, but also for um, the challenges that I'd faced that weren't, um, you know, my fault. Um, and, you know, my reward with that is that uh, I said in 2013 when um you know, when I started this journey of recovery that I was going to share my story openly because I remember saying what inspired me the most was seeing other people do it. And I don't think enough people at that time, especially, were talking about it openly about their struggles. And so I just made that commitment and then it just turned into what it's turned into today. And, you know, um, going into high schools, educating youth on you know the consequences and also the 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 challenges that drug use can bring in people's lives or getting involved with gangs or you know educating people on you know harm reduction services and you know educating people i i mean i just you know uh for for me that's the gift and the amount of youth that are struggling in our society today whether it's from anxiety or stigma or shame um is just the same as I remembered when I was a kid, um, except, you know, when I go in to a high school, there's about 50 kids that want to talk to me after even the counselors are saying, you know, hey, I'm here all year. I may talk to them twice. They'll come see me. They bring in a speaker that, you know, has an impactful story. And I go, I always just say to the counselors, I'm just like, well, I'm just, they know I'm not going to judge them because I've lived a tough life. It's like, I understand why we do the things we do or what we need to do in order to survive our own lives. And so that gives them comfort in knowing that I think judgment from people is what, what drives us into isolation. And, you know, for me, I want people to understand that it's okay to struggle and it's okay to feel the way we feel. But what we got to do is we got to find somebody we can open up to. Yeah. And we got to talk about it and we got to talk about it in a non-judgmental way where it empowers people to make better choices or decisions in their lives or understand what's going on. Because, you know, for a long time, I just I just didn't understand. And, you know, I have a great and amazing life today, you know, family, three kids. You know, I do a lot of public speaking events, you know, um, in Connecticut in a couple of weeks and uh, Portugal and you know, in November to go do a talk. And so I do keynote presentations that inspire people to do better and be better in our society. And if 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 that's what my whole life is amassed to, um, you know, people always say, don't you regret the stuff? And I'm like, you know, everybody, I guess you could say has some regrets, but the life that I had gone through as a kid, I don't believe I would have survived as an adult if I didn't go through those those moments. Right. And so for me now, it's to help people understand that no matter how far you've fallen, no matter where you are in life, never give up, especially on yourself. It's an amazing story. 
The Relentless Podcast is brought to you by You Can Youth Services, which I am very proud to be a part of. You Can Youth Services is an organization that helps young people move out of harm's way and onto a path of economic independence. If you want to learn more about the incredible work that we do with some very vulnerable young people, please go to www.youcan.ca. That's www.youcan.ca. One of the things, and we'll we'll end here fairly quickly, if if because uh, again, just due to time, and and um, but now, and where I saw you on Twitter, you go hard, bro. You go hard. You're an advocate, hard advocate for harm reduction and safe injection sites, which can be controversial. They can be. Okay. I know people that are for them. I know people that are really against them. I also heard you on another program. I like to say program because like I was born in the 70s. So I think it's fun to say program. Sometimes at night I watch my programs. Um, on another program, you talked about how a safe injection site essentially saved your life. So talk about why you advocate hard for this and why this is so important to you which I think comes back to what you just spoke about in regards to the judgmental aspect of it and the the lack of knowledge and really the ignorance around these sites and, and harm reduction. Yeah, I think people often assume that harm reduction enables people to continue using, but it's actually absolutely a false myth. I mean, I mean you know, harm reduction really enabled me to figure it out. Um, I was already using the drugs. When harm reduction didn't exist, I was using the drugs. When it did exist, it reduced the harms for me using those drugs. And so, you know, I wouldn't be alive today if that supervised consumption site um, didn't bring me back to life on those those times. My kids wouldn't be alive. You know, I think what we have in our society is that um, we have this bias that, uh, you know, we're enabling people to continue using drugs. I'm like, dude, they're already using drugs. Right. You know, I was using drugs long before harm reduction even came into play. And so when I look back at a reflection of my life, it really reduced the health complications that one can endure as well. HIV, hepatitis C, you know, here's astronomical health costs to our society as well. And so having harm reduction, I get it. People find it controversial because, you know, they see people using it. And not understanding or if they're getting better. But I can say the same thing on recovery side of things. It's like, if you think I'm going to walk into a treatment facility for three months and walk out and never use drugs again, you got another thing coming. But pe people blame harm reduction for not doing anything. And then I'm like, well, then you look at the recovery side of things. What we haven't done is made a full continuum of care that includes both harm reduction, recovery services, housing, and then employment empowering people to move forward in their lives or supporting them. And then for some people as well, you have to understand that this is, this is their lot in life and maybe they don't want to stop using drugs, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean we should just let them die. Right. That means right. that we should do our best to try to support them and, you know, give them somewhat of a, of a life because they're struggling with something we have no idea. About. But guy, there are people in our society that go, let them die. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If they want to keep doing drugs, they don't, then just let them die. And part of me goes, I don't know. I mean, and guy, you know this better than I do because this is your field now. This is your profession. Um, does anybody, like, do they really, 
really want to continue doing drugs? When you know, when I think of your life and what you've told us today, I, I'm, I, I have zero understanding of it, and and I know that you are thankful that I have zero understanding of it. But there were times that you wanted to continue doing drugs. But but to me, it, it's what you said. It it wasn't about the drugs. It was about the trauma in your life. So whenever I hear of people saying, well, no, you know, I, I just want to continue doing drugs. I, I, I'm not the type that's like, oh, then just let them die. Like that's not who I am as a human. But there are people out there that think that. There are. And, and again, it comes back to, to me about the a little bit of ignorance here. Not a little bit. Sometimes a lot of ignorance. And not stepping back and saying, what is that human being's story? And that, I love humanizing people. It's a big thing for me. I think we need to humanize people more. And I think the work that you're doing is essentially trying to do that. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm definitely always trying to, I never glamorize drug use. Okay. I humanize people. Right. And, and you know, there's things that we have to come to accept in our society. It's like, it's no different from people using alcohol. You know, alcohol kills more people than any other drug. And yet it's socially acceptable. But people using heroin or fentanyl, it's like, we're all like, you know, ah. Uh, and I'm like, well, look, you know, um, it, it's really something that people are doing. So how do we be more supportive? And eventually, I will tell you this, even though I was struggling, people always ask me, it's like, there was times when I wanted to do something better, but I just didn't have the ability to do something better. I didn't, I, I wasn't enjoying my life. My life was extremely punishing. But I just couldn't see a way out of that. And even with people off going, I went into treatment over a dozen times. And even with all that going on, I wasn't able to deal with my own demons. And so therefore, the coping of using the substances was going to be relevant until I was able to get to a place where I could start chipping away at it. And remember that some people's traumas as well are so egregious in their lives that they may never get to that place. And so you have to understand, you know, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse, you know, people being human trafficked. Spiritual abuse, all that stuff. All of it. But somebody might not be in a place to be able to open that door. And we have to understand that as people. And we have to be more supportive. So my thing is, is I wait people out. I let them know what I do. I don't support harm reduction over recovery or recovery over harm reduction. I support helping people and I give them all the options. You know, I know where people can go get, um, you know, privately get uh, diagnosed with ADHD. These are all things that I had learned uh, through my own journey in life where it's like, oh, you don't have to wait two years to go get a diagnosis. You actually get 200 bucks. We can go to this place and they'll see you in a few weeks and, we can start figuring figuring out stuff, right? You know, and this the, my own experience of what I'd been through, how and the the amount of people. Many times I wanted. I know everybody in the treatment industry, right? Because I'd become a you know somewhat of a friendship with everybody, and everybody knew me, and so it's easy for me to navigate people. Somebody wants to go to recovery, they call me. I get them in recovery, and if somebody wants to access a harm reduction facility, well, guess what? I'm going to help them too. And I don't have this thing where it's like, if you do drugs, then I can't help you. Mm. No, I'm, I'm about helping people. 
Mm. I don't care. And if you lay that to the side, I guess what? People always remember how you made them feel. And they'll never forget that. And when they are ready, they're going to call. Trust me. They call. Families call. Kids call. Adults call. And all I do is really just become a taxi driver to drop them off at a facility. This is their journey. They tell me what they want. I'll give them the options. I don't do much. I just get them to where they got to go to. Being humble. You are a relentless man. You are. You are relentless. Well, let's. You know what? Hey, you were relentless in, in uh, as a young person navigating and surviving and shimmy shaking and hustling through your life. And to me, you've been relentless in your recovery. Now you are still relentless in your recovery because I believe that addiction uh, is one of many things in this world that it is relentless on us. It is relentless on, on humans. Like it, it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care if you come from poverty or you're a billionaire. Addiction does not care, and it is relentless. And you have to be relentless to, to be in recovery and stay in recovery. And now you are relentless by helping others. You really are. And it's it's inspiring, man. I, I really hope that people listen to this and and it gives them hope. Because I know lots of people who are not homeless and who are not maybe in the depths of what you went through uh, in the justice system, all that, who are dealing with others that are that have addiction issues. And they may live in a really nice house and a really nice community, but down in that basement, they're dealing with addiction issues. But you are a story of hope, my friend. And so what you've done uh is you, you're helping others you're helping us even being on this podcast and i appreciate it i appreciate you coming on now we do one thing to end every relentless podcast and this will truly guy determine if you are relentless it's called the relentless quiz <laughs> have you heard of it it's quite popular no oh, I'm not. okay guy that was your cue to lie and say yes i've heard of it it's all over the interweb but you decided not to do that. All right, listen. These are very, very serious questions. Scientifically put together, we dropped a ton of cash on this. Okay? <laughs> so this is... You're laughing. You're laughing already, Guy. Come on. <clears throat> guy, here we go. Fruits or vegetables? Oh, fruits. Okay. City or countryside? City. Dirty bathroom or dirty kitchen? Bathroom. Salty or sweet? Sweet. Morning or night? Morning. Okay. Favorite comedy movie? Oh, there's so many. Um, there's so many, and in 2023, people are like, can I say that one? Or will that cancel me if I like that movie? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. You got to pick one or it's going to skew the test. Just pick any. Trading places. Oh, my gosh. No one's ever said that one on here. That is a classic. I love that movie. I love that movie. Um, big party or small gathering? Small gathering. Phone in the bathroom or no phone in the bathroom? Phone in the bathroom. Oh, my God. I love your honesty. Do you know how many people say no phone in the bathroom? And they're lying. Everybody takes <laughs> their phone in the bathroom. 
right? Am I, am I right? Everyone in the bathroom. If you're in a public bathroom, you can hear people on their phone. Like everybody yeah. <laughs> uses phones in the bathroom. I don't care what anybody says. Uh, favorite love song of all time. Oh, um, what's love got to do with it? Oh, a little Tina Turner. Nice. Two more questions left, guy. Cake or pie? Pie. I love pie. Last question. Describe your relentless podcast experience in four words. Very effing awesome time. Nice. You could have said fucking. That's all right. (laughs) (laughs) We swear sometimes on the Relentless Podcast. Guy, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you and and getting to know you a little bit. Um, I really do hope that you and I stay connected. Uh, I have have a little bit of family out in Vancouver that truthfully I never go visit. But maybe I will go (laughs) visit them. And actually a very, very good, good friend of mine uh, is now the the president or CEO at uh, Union Gospel Mission. Oh. Yeah. And they're doing some pretty incredible stuff out there. So I actually, in the next couple of months, may fly out there and, and, and see what they're doing and, and check out a few things. If I do, if you'd be up for it, I'd love to take you out for lunch, man. I'd love to show you around. Yeah. Guy, it's appreciated. Your story is one of inspiration. Uh, your story, truthfully, a lot of it is tragic, but you've come out the other side and it's an inspiration. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you, you, you telling us who you are, what you've been through, and, and now where you're going and what you're doing. And uh, stay relentless, my friend, because you are making a huge difference in our world, and I thank you for that. Thanks, my friend. I will, and you guys take care of yourself. This series is proudly produced by the team at Road 55. Road 55 creates content that connects. For more information, check our website, www.road55.ca.